0: Well, hello, and welcome back to the Cory Doctoral Podcast. If I sound a little congested, it is some postprandial torpor, combined with the last dregs of my COVID, which I'm now over. I've just eaten a giant lunch of Passover Seder leftovers, and my Passover Seder that I've discussed in the last couple of these went really well. I heartily recommend the Judas Haggadah. It's a kind of communist anarchist Haggadah. When it comes time to hide the matzah, the Afikomen, There's a little solemn reading where you say, imagine that you're a corporate tax dodger trying to find some way to hide your money offshore. Now, seek out the place in your home that most closely resembles the Cayman Islands and hide the matzah there. It was very fun. I cooked out of the Serious Eats cookbook, so I made a really good brisket. It was my first attempt at a brisket, and I cooked it in the oven for about five or six hours in a kind of ragu of tomato and carrots and onions and celery. And then I let it sit for like three days in the fridge, covered. And then I sliced it really thin and put it back in that ragu and then put it back in the oven at really low temperature all afternoon before serving it. So it had like four hours to just like sop up all the goop. And the meat was just perfect and tender and delicious. And I made a Jewish foie gras. I made my own chicken liver pate, chopped liver with hard-boiled eggs in it. And I grilled the uh, chicken over charcoal. And I made um, really good herosa, that's the walnut and apple stuff, which as a leftover is amazing with yogurt. If you're looking for a thing to put in yogurt, it's a bit like putting an apple compote in yogurt, but it's got the walnuts and a bit of red wine and no, 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 it's so good. There were a lot of hard-boiled eggs, many of which were left over, so we've got egg salad. And I found some horseradish that, like, literally blew the top of my head off. That was great. I made really good matzo balls. I used grocery store chicken broth, and it wasn't so great. Next time I'm going to make my own chicken broth. But, you know, all in all, it was quite a success. There were 13 of us at the table. There's supposed to be 14. It was only 13. That was a good kind of last supper-style seder. And it was good and secular, and it was funny at times, and it was also reflective and sad at times. We talked about Ukraine. We talked about other refugee crises. There were people there who were brought by old friends who I met for the first time. There were dear old friends who I'd seen several times before. There was another kid for our kid to play with. All in all, it was a really good Seder. We had a cup for Elijah, but we also had a cup for Miriam. We talked about women's issues. And we had an orange on the Seder plate, and we disputed the story that a woman a rabbi is like an orange on the Seder plate. It turns out that it's about our lesbians saying that we should put an orange on the Seder plate for our queer identity because it's a fruit, and you have to spit out the seeds of homophobia and put a beet on the Seder plate, just like they did at the Judah Seder that Jeremy Corbyn went to, the uh, anti-capitalist beat. Instead of a lamb shank. So we had all the stuff. It was great. It was really good. This is my second ever Seder since I moved out of my parents' house when I was 17. And the last one was five years ago. And this one was much more successful. And so we might do it again next year. Although I cooked for like three days and I didn't even do gefilte fish or my own chicken broth or a dessert. So next time, maybe it'll be five days of cooking. Anyway, my week ahead of me is looking very busy, uh, what with the catch-up from the Seder and all the things that are coming up. So on on April 19th, that's Tuesday, Jennifer Egan, a wonderful Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, is having the launch for her new sort of um, science fiction-adjacent technoskeptical novel, The Candy House, and I'm going to be her interlocutor. That's a virtual event with the Vancouver Public Library, and it's at lunchtime. So if you're someone who likes to do things in the middle of the day, that's a thing you can do. It's also, um, if you're in the UK or in Europe, that'll be a good time for you to do it, because it'll be sort of just after dinner for you. And then I'm speaking at Philadelphia's Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conference on Wednesday on the 20th, doing a keynote called Seize the Means of Computation. That'll be a virtual talk. On the 25th, that's uh, I believe a week Monday, I'm doing something called Wiki Workshop, that's a Wikipedia event, and we're going to be talking about SOPA and PIPA and Larry Lessig will be on uh, along with a kind of all-star cast. And then on June 15th and 16th, I'll be one of the speakers at the UK Competition and Markets Authority Data Technology and Analytics Conference. I've also got some stuff coming up that's not yet public, but there'll be an event in London, Ontario, and a few other things in other places in the world. In June, I'll be in Austin, Texas, and I'll be in Singapore in September, I think. So lots coming up. Busy summer. And I hope I get to see you at one or more of those The good thing about having recovered from COVID is I'm not 100% sure, but I'm like 99% sure I'm not going to get COVID again anytime soon. So I'm feeling pretty good about that travel that's coming up. Not much else to report. Continue to write all the things I'm writing. The new novel's coming along well, and um, I this week I'm going to be reading to you... somewhat trenchant column I wrote for Medium. Governments all over the world are contemplating these things that are sometimes called link taxes or snippet taxes, and that's when big tech companies have to pay copyright license fees for the short snippets of news that users post when they post a link to a newspaper or a news site. I think this is a really bad idea. Well, the title of the Medium piece really kind of explains why, and so without further ado, here is that Medium piece, and it is called... Big tech isn't stealing news publishers' content. It's stealing their money. From doctoro.medium.com. Governments around the world, Australia, France, Brazil, and now Canada, have fallen in love with the idea of creating a pseudo-copyright system that requires tech companies to pay license fees to news publishers when their users quote the news. These governments start from the correct premise that a vigorous independent news sector is vital to democracy, and the likewise correct premise that there's something fundamentally crooked in how the tech companies operate, and then draw the alarmingly wrong conclusion that the way to solve this is with a snippet tax, or more charitably, a remuneration right. There really is a problem with the news industry and the tech industry, but creating copyrights in what would otherwise be fair quotation of the news is no solution. In fact, it will only make the problem worse, increasing concentration in both the news and tech industries while undermining the ability of the public including journalists, to discuss, report, analyze, and criticize the news. Let's start with what the news is. It's the thing we're all talking about. The news is not a secret. If you can't talk about it, it's not news. Where do we talk about the news? For years, a growing fraction of our news discourse has moved online. Pandemic lockdowns and isolation accelerated this process, To a first approximation, our online spaces are our public squares, the places where we reason together and debate about what's going on in our world. News publishers want their reporting to be the subject of discussion, of course. News isn't and has never been a passive medium to be read silently and digested alone. The fact that social media is full of people talking about the news, quoting it and linking to it, is a feature, not a bug. Likewise, the fact that searching for newsworthy topics returns links to the news, along with brief snippets that help the reader decide whether to click through, read, and then quote and link in forums where they discuss the news of the day. Every nation's copyright system has limitations and exceptions, like fair use and fair dealing. These are policies that establish some uses of copyrighted work that can take place without the rights holder's permission or consent foremost among these rights is quotation for the purpose of discussion, analysis, and criticism. Putting rights holders in charge of who can criticize their work is a bad idea, for reasons that I hope are obvious to you. Quoting the news isn't a copyright violation, and we should hope that it never is. But the news is in trouble, and big tech has everything to do with it. What is the nature of that trouble, and how do we fix it? Put bluntly, the problem isn't that big tech is stealing publishers' content, it's that big tech is stealing publishers' money. The online ad market has been cornered by two companies, Facebook, which calls itself meta these days, and Google. These companies have taken over the market through a series of illegal actions. First, the illegal anti-competitive acquisition of rivals, which ensured that privacy-respecting alternatives were gobbled up and put out of business. Second, the illegal creepy imposition of universal surveillance of every internet user, whether or not you used one of these two services. Third, the illegal clandestine creation of secret agreements to rig the market for ads. Fourth, the illegal widespread practices of accounting fraud that let the duopoly siphon off money from advertisers and publishers by lying to both. All of this created a system in which nearly half of the ad revenue generated by publishers' content is misappropriated by big tech, whose monopolies enable accounting fraud and market rigging. The ad industry is the biggest fraud on the internet. Up to half of all ad revenue is trousered by big tech. 15% of the remaining ad revenue is just unaccounted for. What's more, the bottom feeders of the non-big tech ad industry are, if anything, even sleazier than big tech itself. Their favorite tactic is to enter losing bids for the right to show ads to high-value audiences, say Washington Post readers, solely to harvest the ad identifiers associated with those high-ticket readers. Then, those also-ran ad companies sell access to those readers on other websites, especially gross clickbait sites like Outbrain and Taboola, at prices far lower than advertisers would pay to show an ad on the Post. That means that every time a high-value publisher runs an auction in the hopes of commanding a higher price from advertisers, it also erodes its own rate card by giving sleazy websites a way to undercut the price to show an ad to those very same readers. The ad tech market is in serious want of reform. The antitrust cases against Facebook and Google around the world are an important step, but they're apt to be very long-run processes. The AT&T breakup took 68 years, all told. Thankfully, we don't have to sit around and wait for breakups to improve the ad tech market. There are many steps that governments can take right away. Ban companies from representing both the demand side and supply side of ad auctions. That is, don't let one company represent both the bidder and seller of a single transaction. Create Sarbanes-Oxley-style criminal penalties for accounting fraud in ad markets. Impose transparency in the calculations of ad fees charged, collected, and remitted, backstopped by independent auditors. Create high statutory civil damages regimes for fraud, including bid rigging. Mandate open header bidding. Ban surveillance-based behavioral advertising, forcing a switch to contextual ads based on the content of articles, not the traits of readers, which will nullify tech giants' data advantages force the tech giants to disclose the criteria they use to prioritize or deprioritize news stories in their recommendation and ranking systems. These are the kinds of measures that will pay all publishers based on their significance to readers' lives and discourse. None of this requires creating licenses for the right to talk about the news. And remember, if you can license the right to talk about the news you can withhold those licenses and prohibit some people from talking about the news. These measures will create competition in ad markets, making publishers less reliant on big tech. So why aren't media giants pushing for these reforms? Why is all the action in creating a licensable right to talk about the news? Because big content is every bit as rotten as big tech. Long before the internet, news media companies were gripped by consolidation. Corporate raiders bought and looted newspapers, consolidating their ad sales into national call centers, wiping out knowledge of and relationships between the sales force and local businesses, consolidating reporting, laying off national and state politics reporters, as well as reporters covering issues of general interest, reviewers, science and business reporters, etc., selling off physical plant and reducing local reporting, or eliminating it altogether. The news media, which had successfully weathered the advent of the telegraph, radio, TV, cable, and satellite, went into the dot-com era with its cash reserves gone, burdened by debt, and vulnerable to price shocks from the buildings and plant that they had sold off and leased back. Things have only gone from bad to worse. Private equity roll-ups reduced major Metro's daily papers into skeleton crews operating out of brick bunkers the size of a Chipotle. The owners of these papers are typically far-right ideologues, offshore vulture capitalists who debt-load their acquisitions, demand government bailouts, and then publish manifestos glorifying market capitalism, or turn great papers into side hustles used to pimp their owners' online casinos. The news industry isn't dominated by patrician media barons committed to the democratic role of the press. The press is a highly concentrated industry whose billionaire owners have raised prices, lowered quality, slashed wages, and waged war on their workers' unions. For these media companies, a snippet tax is much better than a fair ad market. For example, Rupert Murdoch used Australia's snippet tax as leverage to secure a sweetheart deal for his papers from Google and Facebook, while the independent news outlets that served the regions, whose papers Murdoch had bought and shuttered, were frozen out. In France, media giants rigged the snippet tax negotiation so that publishers could only get paid if they promoted Google's new showcase news product, making their financial futures dependent on Google's ongoing dominance of news. Big news correctly understands that snippet taxes are a way to drive cozy, exclusive profit-sharing relationships between big tech and big content while dooming smaller media companies. By contrast, unrigging the ad market would give those smaller companies a chance to thrive and threaten the dominance of financialized news monopolists. Big tech is the problem with the news. It's not the solution. News media is essential to democracy, but so is the right to talk about the news. A snippet tax doesn't just sideline indie news outlets, it also excludes new tech companies, including co-ops, nonprofits, and startups who might challenge big tech's hegemony and provide better places where we can talk about the news. Any snippet tax big enough to make a difference to news reporting will also be too expensive for these nascent competitors to afford. In Europe and Australia, smaller news outlets and individuals were tricked by media giants into backing their play. The support of these indies and beloved reporters was key to passing the snippet tax, but it was a desperate gambit. Increasing the revenues of media monopolists does not mean that reporters will get paid more or that indies will benefit alongside of them. Unrigging the ad market may sound like a big lift, but indies and reporters won't have to fight that fight alone. Public sentiment has turned firmly against commercial surveillance, and killing commercial surveillance will take us most of the way to a better ad tech market. What's more, a fair ad tech market doesn't require a regulation that lets the government decide who is a legitimate news publisher. But there's another important ally in the battle for better ads. Advertisers. After all, the ad tech industry doesn't just rip off publishers, it takes advertisers for a ride too. News workers have fallen prey to the same despair that has infected so many writers, musicians, filmmakers, and other culture workers, the belief that they have no power on their own, and that the best they can do is root for their own monopolists, to wrestle with the tech monopolists, in the hopes that the good monopolists will drop a few crumbs as they gobble up their winnings. But monopolists aren't on the side of workers or audiences or democracy. Our democracy needs a free and open press and free and open public squares where we can discuss its reporting. Snippet taxes aren't about democratic fundamentals. They're just a way to force two different groups of rapacious monopolists to divide up their ill-gotten gains in a slightly different way. All right, that's it for this week. I'm going to miss you next week because the family, we're all going to go to Catalina Island for a couple of days and see the uh, bison. But a couple of weeks from now, i will see you again hope you uh have uh, a good couple of weeks and um stay away from the covid talk to you later you've been listening to the cory Doctor podcast licensed under creative commons attribution non-commercial share us 3.0 or as woody guthrie put it in another context this song is copyrighted in the U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of Arn, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do many thanks to john taylor williams for mastering that's rynek studio w-r-y-n-e-c-k studio at gmail.com john taylor williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer producer composer and sound designer in his free time he makes beer jewelry odd musical instruments and furniture he likes to meditate to read and to cook talk to you next week